All right, this morning, uh, I almost said take your Bible and go to Revelation. We're done with Revelation for now. Um, Some of you haven't heard me preach other than in Revelation, but um, it's important. I'm not saying it's not important. We need to remember that. But this morning, we're going to go to Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 12. Uh, Luke wrote Acts, so it's his book, or he's the author, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 12. I'll get this straightened out. Acts chapter 12, and this morning we're going to look at what the the Bible has to say about the power of prayer. And there's an example here, as we studied through Acts and Bible study last year, um, we saw a lot of the early church engaging in prayer over different things and different situations, but this particular situation shows the real power that prayer has in it. And it doesn't matter what our circumstances are, what our problem is, what our question is, for God to deal with us, to give us an answer to prayer. Prayer is that avenue that we have with him to gain wisdom, to gain help in time of need. The Bible tells us that. Even to have perfect peace, as we talked about first thing this morning, as we keep our mind fixed on him in prayer. But there's really no situation that is impossible, and I want you to focus on that because what we'll read this morning seems like an impossible situation, and it was through the power of prayer that God brings about the answers and results that literally save a life here. So I want to start reading right at the beginning of the chapter. We're going to read down through verse 19, and this is about Peter when he's put in prison. So Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1, says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternings of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first... And the second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the door for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then they said, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go, show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. Now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea unto Caesarea and there abode. Let's take a minute and pray before our message this morning. Our Father, today we come before you in worship and in submission to your authority as God. 
And Lord, as we enter into your word, looking at what you have to teach us today, Lord, help us to practice that same submission to the authority of the lessons and the truth that you have for us today. Lord, I pray that you would guide us by your spirit to understand these things, to understand what you have given us in the power of prayer and the things that you want to do in our lives. But Lord, teach us to pray as you did the early believers. And I pray that your spirit would accomplish that through your word that you want accomplished in us. Lord, fill me now with strength and with your spirit. I pray that you give me wisdom as I speak. And may your words be spoken boldly in truth so that we hear your word proclaimed, that we are challenged by your truth today, and that we uh, respond in submission to them and in obedience. But we give you the praise and honor now, and we ask that you be glorified in this time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As you read this passage, you see Peter, and I don't think anybody would want to be in Peter's position at this point. You know, and the question is often posed to us, you know, if we were put in a life or death situation, would you deny Christ? Would you stand up for Christ? None of us have faced prison or martyrdom, death, for our faith yet. I don't know if we will in our lifetime, but Peter did. It was a real threat. And so here we read about that threat and this impossible situation that Peter's put in as he's awaiting his death in prison, and literally all of what we read happens the night before he's supposed to be executed. And you can imagine Peter's mindset. But I want to to point out the position and the activity of the people of the church there. Because that's really what stands out here, and that was the channel through which God works and accomplishes this seemingly impossible uh, task of saving Peter. But we all face impossible situations. This is Peter's. And we start by reading in verse 1 about Herod, the king, stretching forth his hands to vex the church or to intimidate them in a sense. Now I want to understand I want you to understand who this is. This is Herod Agrippa. You read about him later as Paul appears before him. But Herod Agrippa is the Her- the fourth Herod. Through scripture there's four Herods. Number 1 was known as Herod the Great. This is the Herod that slaughtered all the babies in in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus birth. That was the first Herod. And second was Herod Antipas. Okay, and he was the Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. That was the second. The third one was known as Herod Philip II, and he was murdered by his own father because he feared his own son was after him, and he really never ascended to the throne. Um, but then we come to Herod the Fourth. This is Herod that we are reading about here, Herod Agrippa. And he is the Herod that accomplishes these things, that has... James, the apostle, executed, and that Paul eventually appears before, okay? So just so we know, this man, Herod, was appointed by Rome. He did not inherit this position necessarily, although he was in the family of the Herods, that his family was appointed by Rome to be, in a sense, the king over this region, to rule instead of Rome or in their place, according to Roman rule. Now, this Herod, Herod Agrippa, was a Jew, and he was a very law-abiding Jew for all outward practical purposes, okay? And so the Jews, in a sense, liked him, especially the leadership of the Jews liked him, because his job basically was to keep peace between the Jewish leadership and the Roman government to avoid any kind of uprisings. And then through the Jewish leadership, hopefully they would secure peace with the people of Israel. And so this is who we're talking about. And we know, if you study Acts, by this time, the Jewish leadership had a problem with the church, and especially with the apostles of the church that Jesus had appointed, because their message was that Jesus was risen from the dead. He was the promised Messiah, and that didn't keep well with the Jewish leadership. They denied that. And so this controversy has been stirred up between the Jewish leadership and the church, and now Herod has been appointed to intimidate the church, encouraged by the Jewish leadership, so that they can kind of qualm this uh, this 
movement that's been spreading these followers of Jesus Christ who've been disrupting peace because they're preaching, from the Jewish perspective, another gospel. And so in the first act that he does to try to intimidate the church is he takes James, that's the Apostle James, the brother of John, and he kills him. Now, James, remember, was part of that inner circle of Jesus, James, John, and Peter. He was there at the transfiguration. He seems to always be present in that uh, trilogy of close disciples with Jesus. And so by killing this elite apostle, then Herod is trying to intimidate the church and kind of force them underground, really, or force them to leave, chase them back into their hole, if you will. And so he kills James, and he saw that it pleases the Jewish leadership, and he figures, well, if that pleases him, then let's keep going. And so he takes Peter, and he has the same intention for Peter. He binds him, he puts him in prison, and his, his intention is to kill him as well, to keep this peace with the Jewish leadership, and also to kind of qualm the uh, uprising, if you want to call it that, of the church. And so he's put him in prison, he's delivered him to what they call four quaternions of soldiers, and he's going to bring him out, and it says Easter in King James, that's around the resurrection time of Jesus Christ, okay, that's what we celebrate at Easter. So it's right after Passover, three days after Passover, that he's intending to do this. He can't do it during Passover, because you can't do that during Passover, that would violate the law. So his intention is to kill Peter right after that time period, or right at Easter time. Now, these four quadrants or groups of Roman soldiers, that's what a quadrant is, four groups of four soldiers. There's 16 soldiers assigned to Peter, and there's a rotation of four groups on a three-hour shift. Two would be chained to Peter inside the prison, then two would be stationed right outside his door, and those those, uh, groups of soldiers would rotate every four hours or so. It's just like shifts that we have in the military now, okay? And there was always two soldiers chained to Peter so that he would not escape. Now, if you read back in Acts, you read earlier that Peter and John were put in prison for preaching, and they were eventually let go. And we know that there was another, there's another instance that Paul is let out of prison with Silas. That comes later, okay? So there's um, there, there's questions here about the security of the apostles because they seem to have the power of God before them and with them. And so uh, Herod is going to make sure Peter does not escape. And so he has this group of 16 soldiers, four soldiers at all times with him. So we're talking about a maximum security that Peter's in. And so for all practical purposes, humanly speaking, this is an impossible situation that Peter finds himself in. There's no way for him to escape. Nobody's going to risk their lives to help him. And in fact, the church at this point has kind of been forced, I don't want to say underground, but into submission by this intimidation by Herod. And so now they're basically meeting in homes. They're praying, and we read that here. They're praying, but they're not out doing the work of the ministry. And that's where we are. And it says in verse 5, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. There's the focus of the message today. Prayer was made without ceasing. That means these people continued to pray all the time. And I don't know how long Peter was in prison. It could be days. It could be weeks. We don't know. It was several days. We know that at least. And so the church had basically decided to meet together, hiding in a house, praying for Peter continually. And that's the situation that we find Peter in, on death row, and the church praying for him. And he's about to be executed in the morning. And then we come across this defining word, but prayer was made without ceasing. See, the but, that three little word, always makes a difference in the circumstance. If you were here uh, about six months ago, I preached a message called, but God. But God, that little word but, it changes the whole circumstance. It's not because of the word but, but it's what follows that. But God intervenes, and here it's but prayer was made. And there's the power of God in us. 
That's the power of God that he has made available to us through this thing called prayer. And now the church is practicing that power, waiting for the results to happen. Now, in a sense, they're doing the right thing. But we'll see, they don't really have the right mindset in doing it. But there's still power in prayer. And so this word but changes the whole circumstance. Paul told the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians 10 7, he says, you're looking at things as they are outwardly. Basically, we look and live by sight, not by faith too often. And that's why we don't have peace. This morning I shared with you Isaiah 26. You know, we have perfect peace when we keep God in our minds. When God is right there, we're always aware of his presence. We're always in communion with him. That's when peace happens. And so these Christians are praying here, looking for peace, looking for God's answer, but they're not really experiencing God's peace, and we'll see that in their reaction to what God does. But this situation is hopeless for Peter. And many times we look at our situation, we think, well, there's no way this could ever work out well. Even if I pray, I don't see how God could fix this. Even if I ask God to do something and he may do it, it really doesn't fix the situation. It could be a sickness, it could be a situation of a debt, it could be something else in our lives, and it just seems overwhelming for us. And so we all face impossible situations, but what changes, if I can use this phrase, what changes the odds for Peter and for us is the power of prayer. And I think we neglect how much power we have with God through this prayer that God has given us. And that's what changes the odds for Peter. The difference is prayer. But I want you to look at what kind of prayer we're talking about, okay? It says in in verse 5, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, but verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing. This is unceasing prayer. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us to pray without ceasing. And it doesn't mean to walk around with your head bowed and your eyes closed, walking into things because you're praying. It means to remain in the attitude of prayer, understanding that God's presence is with you, that he wants to fellowship and hear from you, that he wants to communicate with you, that he wants to speak through to you through his word and through answered prayer. But how often do we neglect that? Do we really practice continuous prayer in our spirit? Or do we get fed up and frustrated and flustered by the situations that life throws at us because we forget about God and all we see is what's in front of us. Well, the church here understood that there was nothing they could do, so they went to the Lord. And it wasn't just, okay, Lord, we need your help. Amen. Let's go about our life. They continued in prayer together. Now, they literally stayed together and prayed. Now, I don't know if they stayed in the same room, in the same house, for the entire time for days, or if they took rotations and just met together when they could and met and prayed together, but it says it was continuous, ongoing. And then it also says it was unified. They prayed together. Now, in a church, I think that is a key to really experiencing the power of God, continuous, unified prayer. We pass out these prayer lists every week for that purpose. These are requests that you have let us know about. And as a church, we should commit together to continuously praying in unity that God would answer these requests and that he would be glorified in them. But I'm afraid that many times we we take these sheets home and they get filed away and we don't remember about them until we come back the next week and, oh, there's a new one. Continuous, unified prayer is where we connect with the power of God to answer prayer. And that's what the church is doing here. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That fervent means dedicated, concentrated prayer about something. The effectual, that means it is effective. It brings answers. But it has to be fervent, focused continuous, and unified together with believers. See, when Christians band together in fervent, continuous prayer for God's intervention, 
then God moves in amazing ways. And I could give you example after example after example through history, how God has done that. We read about it in Scripture. And here is one of those situations where God intervenes because of the fervent, united prayer of the church for a certain specific request. But these, this church or this congregation is united in praying for Peter, and this is exactly the way it should be, because the church was meant to pray together. When Jesus went into the temple to drive out the money changers, what did he say? Do you remember? He said, you have made my house a den of thieves, basically, or a business, but this should be a house of prayer. Where believers gather to worship, it should be a place of prayer. It should be defined by prayer. That's one of the reasons why we have so many instances of prayer in our worship service. We pray at the beginning. We pray for communion. We pray. Um, uh, we have the, the pastoral prayer. We pray at the end. We pray before the, the uh, right after the reading of Scripture. Because prayer is an important part of unifying us in the same mindset. It brings us together so we're all focused on the same thing. And that's what the church here is doing. As you study through the book of Acts, one of the things that you'll see is that you can't imagine the early church meeting together without praying together. You see that over and over and over, the focus on the prayer that they have as they meet as a congregation. It's what they meant to do. And lack of prayer in a church should be just as unthinkable for us now because where two or three or two or three hundred are gathered together to pray, they will experience an unbelievable, and I hate to use that word, but we experience an unbelievably power in unity through which God can and will do amazing things in our lives. But I think the church is so powerless and we see so little of God's working because we put so little emphasis on the prayer of God's people. It's just something we do when we get up in the morning or when we have dinner together. You know, you thank God for your food three times a day. You may pray when you come to church. Other than that, it's just kind of a, uh, whatever. We, We put very little emphasis on prayer. But it's prayer specifically, as we pray in the Spirit, unified, continuous prayer, focusing on the same things in the same mind that brings us into unity. Prayer gets us on the same page and on the same wavelength because we're praying for the same things. Prayer unites us as one, as we seek God together as one body for the same things. And it plugs us into the power of God and God's way of thinking because we're praying for God ultimately to be glorified in how he answers those prayers. And so see that unity is built as we pray in unity. When Christians pray together, they experience this unique bond through which God can and will do great things. What did Jesus say is the worst situation to be in, in order to, uh, as opposed to unity? He says, when a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And that's true for a church. If we're praying for different things or if we're not praying at all, there's no substance to bring us together. And so the Holy Spirit uses prayer to unify us as one body. Uh, T.W. Hunt wrote a book called Prayer Life, and he said this in his book, if we examine the expansion of the church in the book of Acts and the epistles, we see convincing proof of the power of prayer. The early church had innumerable obstacles. Christianity was unknown, and it was opposed by the authorities wherever it spread. It suffered constantly from false accusations and rumors. But by the end of the first century, it had spread in exactly the geographic pattern commissioned by Jesus, starting at Jerusalem, then to Judea, and ultimately to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. This rapid geographical and ideological shift could have been accomplished only by supernatural forces. And the instrument of that expansion was the church, and the force the church was using was prayer. And that's why there's such an emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit through the prayer of the early church as you read the book of Acts. And here we see one example in in Acts chapter 12. So from the earliest days of the church, the church has always been at its best and been most effective when its people have been bonded together in prayer, unified in prayer. 
Now, this isn't just true in Jerusalem. This is the model that God espoused for us as his church and as local bodies to practice, to see the power of God work through us. And if we want to see the power of God in Center Township that was exhibited here in Jerusalem, then we need to pray like these people prayed. But I think that's what's lacking in churches today. And one thing, we need to look at prayer as they did. This is the access to the unlimited power of God. And how often do we just go about our day going, don't worry, God, I got this. And we deny the power that's available to us, and then we end up not accomplishing what he wants us to, being ineffective in our ministry and testimony, because we don't access God through prayer. Acts 2, here's, Acts 2 says the early disciples gave themselves continually to prayer, and we have to do that as well. It's a continuous prayer. So as we look at this passage, on one side of the situation is the power of Rome, which was the, the most powerful government of the world of the day. They controlled basically everything, and their leader, Herod, who was absolutely wicked, And then we see this but on the other side. We have the church praying. Where's more power found? In the prayer of the church. It doesn't matter what they're facing, and it doesn't matter what we face. The power of God, the biggest power available to us, the strongest power that can be found, is found in the power of prayer as we access God's unlimited power. Some will say, well, you know, it's not really realistic to think that a little band of people praying together could really change the the force of government. I disagree. Here we have a very good example of that. We look at our government today and we think, well, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Absolutely not. The answer is we can pray. And I think we pray too little. The church as a whole prays too little, and that's why we find ourselves in the situation we're in today. But prayer is the most powerful force in this world because it has the power of God behind it. And I think we forget that too often. We say a few words, we say amen, and we really don't even realize what's going on. We have access to the power of God, and we neglect it. As someone has wisely said, prayer is the force that moves the hand that moves the world. God is the one who controls it, and all all things in him consist, Colossians tells us. And if we really believe that God controls everything in the world, then you'd think we would try to have access to that power more often than we do. Prayer is the force that moves the hand that moves the world, and that brings us to verse 7. Here's the results of their prayer. Behold, the angel of the Lord came upon Peter, upon him, and a light shined in prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. The angel said unto him, Gird thyself, bind on thy sandals, and he did. And he said unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. The answer comes. People are praying for Peter, for his release, for God to protect him from death, and the answer comes as they're praying. The angel shows up, and it's a supernatural result here. Okay, we don't need, God can use natural processes, but here he chooses to use a supernatural process to release Peter, and he sends an angel to release Peter. And all Peter had to do was listen to and follow the angel, and everything was taken care of. So sometimes when we pray, we neglect the answers because the answer is found in simple obedience. I mean, I'm sure Peter was praying. Peter was probably praying, Lord, if you want me to continue my ministry, you're going to have to get me out of here somehow. And so God sends an angel and literally leads him out by the hand. In fact, it says Peter thought he was having a vision. He even realized he was loose until he's standing outside in the street, and then he looks around and he goes, oh, I'm free. Oh, that was a real angel. Oh, those guards are back there, and I'm out here. Wow, that really was true. But what would have happened if that angel showed up 
and said to Peter, stand up, get your shoes on, put your coat on because we're leaving. He goes, oh, you know, let me sleep five more minutes. Oh, this isn't real. This is just a vision. Oh, you know what? I don't, I don't need to put my shoes on. Simple obedience. He put his shoes on. He stood up. He put his coat on. He followed the angel. Now, he could have said at that point, wait a minute, you don't understand. There's four guards here, and I'm chained to each one of these guards. How am I supposed to put my shoes on and just walk out of here? But isn't that our response many times when we pray? Because we're praying to God, and sometimes our prayers are answered just through simple obedience to him, but all we do to God is go, God, I want you to answer this prayer, but you got to understand my situation, Lord. This, this, I, I can't do that. I can't go to church. I can't read my Bible. I'm too busy. This job is never going to work out. You don't understand how sick I really am. Yeah, God does. He understands. And sometimes all it takes is simple obedience to see our prayers answered. Sometimes we pray for God to do for us the things that we should be doing for ourselves. And he's not going to do that. When Israel was complaining in the wilderness and praying to God for food, remember they were hungry. And God said, okay, I'm going to send you manna. Did he send them manna that fell right down into their lap in their tents? No. He put it out on the ground and he told them, here it is, but you have to go pick it up. So sometimes in our prayers, God puts uh, uh, some of that on us and says, okay, I'm going to answer your prayer, but you got to put your shoes on and start obeying. And again, I think that's part of our lack of seeing God's answers to prayer because well, for instance, we pray for people that we know that we're related to, loved ones that are not saved, we want them to be saved. And we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray. And how often do we go see them or pick up the phone and say, hey, I've got some news i got to share with you from God's Word. That's a command that's given to us for us to be a testimony of God's truth, to be witnesses, Jesus says in Acts 1, of his power. And we'll pray for people to get saved, but we never bother to talk to them. See, sometimes our answers to prayer are found in our simple obedience. God took care of all the objections that Peter could have brought up, and he doesn't. Okay, what about the chains? Well, God made them fall off. What about the guards? Now, it's interesting. What does this, the Bible say about the guards? It says he's chained to two. There's two more standing outside. And those guards knew, by the way, if they fell asleep and this prisoner escaped, their lives were in danger. So I'm pretty sure they, at least the ones outside the door, weren't asleep. And the Bible doesn't say they fell asleep. It just doesn't mention anything. It says Peter walked out and they didn't even notice. You think God can't overcome natural obstacles? It's a supernatural deliverance. Our problem is that sometimes we don't even know God's answering our prayer. And this, verse 11 says, was Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel. He has delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the people of the Jews. Everybody's against me, and yet God has answered this prayer, and he didn't even realize it until he was outside of the prison in the city. God had brought him that far. And then he turned around and goes, oh, 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 yeah, God answered the prayer. And I think we find ourselves in that situation because we're praying and we're praying for something specific that we want God to do and God answers in another way and we don't even see it. Now, Peter thought he saw a vision and then he realized, no, this is real. Sometimes I think we see God's answers to prayer as some ethereal thought or idea, but there's nothing real of, of real substance that he gives us as an answer, and yet we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray, and then we look back and realize, oh, wait, God already gave me an answer to that. There's a story told of a man who was sitting on top of his roof during a hurricane, watching the floodwaters continue to rise, 
And he's sitting there praying for God to rescue him. And as he's praying, a man in a rowboat drifts by and he kind of throws a rope out and ties onto the house. He says, here, get in. He says, I don't have a whole lot of control, but at least we can be safe in the boat. And the man says, no, go ahead. God's going to rescue me. And so the rowboat goes on, and a little while later, as he's continuing to pray, God sends two men in a motorboat. And they pull up, and they say, get in, get in, we'll save you. And he says, no, don't worry about me, God's going to rescue me. And finally, as the waters come up and they're lapping at his feet, a helicopter from the Coast Guard hovers overhead, and a Coast Guardsman lowers down, he says, I'm here to rescue you. And the guy says, no, no, don't worry about me, God's going to rescue me. And of course, the Coast Guardman is confused, but he goes on, and we know what happens. The waters come up and sweep him away, and he drowns. And as he stands in heaven before God, he goes to God, and he says, I don't understand why you let me drown. I prayed for you to rescue me. I believed that you would rescue me, and you didn't. You let me drown. And God's answer to him is, well, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What more could you want? But isn't that how we are in our prayer sometimes? We pray thinking that God's going to answer a certain way. Maybe we expect a supernatural major event to occur on behalf of our need. And sometimes God answers our prayer. We're not paying attention and we miss the answer because we don't see it God's way. Peter didn't realize what the answer was or that it had been answered until he was already there. He didn't even know what was going on in the process of it. But that's how God teaches us to pay attention. We need to make sure that our own expectations don't blind us to God's answers to our prayers. When we pray, it's it's a human nature to have certain expectations as we pray. You know, we pray, well, God, I'm sick. I've got this illness. Please heal me. But what do we mean by that? I think we should pray that. Lord, we know that you can heal us, but your will be done, like Jesus prayed. Your will be done. And as we pray your will be done, then we pay attention to what God's answers will be. I mean, we pray for people to be healed every week. Many of those people are healed, and they regain their health. Some of those people don't get healed, and they eventually die. But as believers, isn't death ultimate healing? No more sickness. I mean, we saw that in Revelation. No more pain. No more suffering. So as we pray, we need to look at it from God's perspective. And as we look for answers, we need to see those answers from God's perspective, not necessarily what we expect. Here, Peter faced overwhelming odds, and he has God's power of prayer, or the power of God's prayer on his side, and he doesn't realize the answer is there. Now, Verse 12, it says, when he considered the thing, talking about his release, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. When she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And look at the reaction. And they that, and they said unto her, thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then they said, is his angel. Now, here we're talking about the power of prayer, the continued united prayer of the church, and here God answers their prayer. Peter literally shows up at their prayer meeting, standing at the door, and they don't believe that God answered their prayer. Now, how often have we done that? We pray to the Lord, Lord, we really want this to happen. We're praying together that you would answer this prayer. We pray, we believe, we believe, we believe, and then it happens. And no, well, you know, in the back of our mind, well, I don't, I don't really expect God to answer that. It's no way God could answer that. No, it's too big of a problem. Or if he answers it and we realize and we recognize that answer, what is our response? That's unbelievable. Oh, ye of little faith. How can God's answers to prayer be unbelievable? We should believe that God can answer prayer as we pray. These people are praying, and God answers their prayer, and they couldn't accept the answer because they really didn't have the faith that God could answer their prayer. They had already seen James be killed. 
There's the example. I'm sure they had prayed for James. Now they're praying for Peter, and I don't know their mindset. Maybe they're truly praying in faith, but they just can't accept the fact that God would answer their prayer that quickly in that way. And they had already seen James die, so now they're just going through the ritual. But now God gives them an answer, and they're standing there, and they're, no, 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 that's not really true. No. And their answer that it's his angel, they expected Peter to be dead at this point. So God answered our prayer in releasing him to heaven. But he wasn't big enough to release him on earth. So the people had their prayers answered even though their faith was small. They had enough faith to ask for God's intervention, but they didn't have enough faith to accept the answer. And here the answer to their prayers was standing at their door, and they didn't even believe it. Now, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus says, If we have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, we can what? Move mountains. Anybody move a mountain lately? Okay. Uh, I know there are times in my life when I've had to dig dirt and move piles, and boy, I wish I could have just prayed and say, okay, go over there. Would have saved me a lot of work. But again, sometimes those answers to prayer are in our obedience. But Jesus says, if you have faith, just as a grain of a mustard seed, you should be able to move mountains. You can move mountains because God is the creator of that mountain, and God can do it. Here, this congregation wasn't ready to receive God's answer because they never expected to get the result. They expected something else. So the question is, how big is your faith? Your faith is shown first by how much you pray. Am I truly dependent upon God for everything? Second of all, your your faith is demonstrated by your commitment to your prayer and by how you expect those prayers to be answered. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, that means a man living in faith, availeth much, James says. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, we know that verse. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do you acknowledge God in all your ways? Or do you walk around complaining that you don't know what to do every day? Or you don't know how God's going to direct you? Or you're not sure how things are going to work out? In all your ways acknowledge him. If we really trust him in everything, then we'll pray to God for him in everything, And we'll be watching for what God's going to do, expecting him to answer our prayer. That's praying in faith. Verse 16, Peter continues knocking. They just ignore him, say, oh, no, he's probably dead. And he continues knocking. And then they finally open the door. And it says, when they saw him, they were astonished. Why are we astonished when God answers our prayers? Why? Why? Isn't he say he's going to take care of us? Doesn't he promise that he's going to listen to our prayers, that he has answers for everything that we bring before him? Now, it's not always going to be a yes. It's not always going to be exactly what we expect, but he will answer our prayer. And yet, like I said before, he answers our prayer, and then we're like, wow, that's unbelievable. I can't believe he did that. Why are we praying then? Why are we surprised when God answers our prayer? See, praying in faith expects answers, but it expects answers in God's way. And therefore, prayer teaches us not just how to pray, but how to live. As we close, let me give you two simple lessons out of this. Number one, prayer changes the circumstances sometimes. Did it change the circumstances for James on earth? Not really. James died. He was killed. Did it change the circumstances for Peter? Absolutely. In a a supernatural, God-glorifying way. There's only one way that could have happened, and that was the power of God in response to prayer. But sometimes prayer changes our circumstances, and sometimes God can make the impossible happen. It's not a guarantee that he will always do that, but he can. And so we should always pray that God can do the impossible. But we need to be ready to receive those answers the way God gives them to us. We need to pray in my, with the mindset that all things are possible with God. 
and not pray going, well, God, yeah, probably not going to work out, but I got to do this, and so here's the request. Prayer, pray in faith because God can change circumstances. And number two, prayer changes people always. You can't live a life dedicated to prayer and not be changed. Because prayer will change the way you see life. Prayer will change the way you look at the different circumstances you're in. Prayer will cause you to look at things as not problems, but as opportunities for God to work. But how often do we just sit back and complain instead of praying? C.S. Lewis said it this way, prayer doesn't change God, prayer changes me. God knows what he's going to do. He wants us to come to him to demonstrate our dependence upon the one who controls all. And so as we pray, it changes me. It doesn't change God any at all. God is always the same. Look at the church here. The church is in the building, kind of hiding and praying. They're praying, and I give them that. They're kind of hiding. You don't see a lot of activity going on except the prayer. But look down to verse 24. We haven't read verse 24. It says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. How did that happen? Because these people who prayed and saw God's power all of a sudden started living what they prayed. God gave them boldness through the answer to prayer. And they saw the power of God available to them through God's answers to prayer. And the same is true for us. God will change us because as we pray, we will see the power of God demonstrated in his answers. And therefore, we know that even though we think we can't do what God has called us to do, it's in his power that he can accomplish it through us. And so we become bold, not just in our testimony, but in our ministry to people. Prayer will change us, always, if we dedicate ourselves to prayer. Because the power of prayer is limitless. Now here we have a little church, probably 40 or 50 people. The Bible says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What could God do through the effectual, fervent prayer of 40 or 50 people united in continuous prayer? I don't know how many people were here praying for Peter. But we have no idea what God could do through each one of us and through this church as a whole through the, through the power of prayer. I want you to look around. Just look, see how many are here. I, and I don't know how many it is, 20 or 30, okay? If we just committed to praying together in unity, if we just committed to praying for these requests that we get every week, do you believe that we'd see God's hand and God's power in this church? I want to challenge you. God will never accomplish the impossible until we bind together and, and commit ourselves to prayer. Above everything else, I think, I would hope that this church could be defined by our commitment to praying praying for each other, praying for God's will, praying for other people, praying for our community, praying for our government. But if we commit ourselves to praying together, unified, continuous prayer, not just in our service, but when you go home, pray for the things we prayed about together. And then we know we're all praying the same things. I think you would see God do amazing things through a small church that we would otherwise go, no, that's impossible. Not enough people, not enough resources, too big of an of a obstacle. How big is God's power through prayer? I want you to pray that God would do an amazing work through this church. And I'm not talking we're going to have a grand building, we're going to have a thousand people in attendance. I'm talking about building the kingdom of God. It starts with each one of us. But as you pray and as you commit yourself to prayer, I guarantee it will change you, first of all. It will change your perspective and your attitude about what God can do through you. And then it will affect the ministry of this church in in an impossible way. And I really believe that. 
God could grow this group of 40 or 50 to 100 or 150 in the next six months. I'm not saying he will. I'm not asking him to do that. I'm asking him to build his church. But it's not going to happen if we don't pray. And if you have in the back of your mind, eh, you know, that's not ever going to happen, then you're one of the reasons why God can't use this church yet to accomplish impossible things. It's not about just the guy who stands up here. This is the church. And God uses all of us, through all of us, to accomplish amazing things. But it starts with continuous, unified, fervent prayer. We've seen God answer prayer requests that are on our list every week. Why don't we pray more then? If God can do those little things, why don't we pray for the big things? Why don't we pray every day for God to accomplish great things through us? Why does it always have to be somebody else? If you're still alive, God can still use you. But the question is, have you submitted yourself to the Lord to use you, and have you committed yourself to experiencing his power through you in the power of prayer? I hope that we can commit ourselves to praying in a way that God can grow his church through each one of us, and that God will accomplish great things through this congregation right here. And so with that commitment, there's no time like the present to start. So let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you that you have given us the opportunity to come before your throne to have access not just to you in person, but to have access to your power as you promised us. Lord, you've demonstrated your power in the examples that you've given to us in Scripture, like the one we saw today in Peter's life, where you can accomplish the impossible, things that are beyond us. But Lord, that's what you can do. You are the God of the impossible. And so I pray that you would help us to commit ourselves to that purpose, to praying for you to accomplish the impossible through each one of us as we yield to your spirit, as we yield to what you want to do through us and in us. But Lord, help us to become a people of prayer, knowing that without it, we are weak and helpless and can do nothing. Lord, use this church. Use it as a beacon to the local community, help our message and our testimony to shine brightly as you live in us and through us so that other people can see the impossible that you can do in their lives as well. Thank you again for your, the teaching of your truth today. Help us not to leave this place and forget it, but to take this promise that you will work through us if we just commit to praying, to believing, to obeying, so that you can do your work. And help us to love you more each day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.